good morning, beautiful people. It is a typical August bank holiday Saturday here in the UK, which is to say it's cold with every chance of rain. And of course, today would be the day that I am actually shooting a wedding, even in these COVID times. I'm Paul, and this is the Mastering Portrait Photography Podcast. believe it I'm out on the road again and the weather is distinctly mixed uh, which is a shame given the hot weather we've had all year there's water on the road there's water around the forecast is unconvincing to put it mildly and of course today would be the day that I am shooting a wedding it was a last-minute booking a photographer uh, unfortunately let the couple down I don't know the backstory all I know is we got a a phone call about a week and a half ago to ask if we would step in and so thankfully uh, all thanks to Sam and Sam one of our other clients who allowed us to postpone their family shoot which I know had been tricky to get uh, so that we could help out and photograph a wedding because they were going to be stuck without a photographer. Uh, so that's what's on the cards today and I've got 40 minutes I can see from the sat nav that it's about 40 minutes away uh, to my first venue and I have to admit at this stage of a day I'm always apprehensive I've never yet found the mechanisms to bypass that I know the worst moment of all is just before I knock on the house door you're never quite certain whether it's the right house you don't know what mood everyone's going to be in because this is a last minute booking I haven't visited any of the locations uh, the only place I definitely know Oh, well, that's, actually, that's not wholly fair. The two places I know, I know the school a little bit. I have photographed in this private school church once before. It's a very famous school. It's Berkhamsted School uh, in Berkhamsted, and it's where Handel, he apparently, I believe this is true, donated an organ to the chapel there. So uh, I don't know if there will be any organ-played music. I'm not quite sure what the COVID guidelines are, but if there is, if the organ is being played, it is one that Handel actually played on which I always think is quite a cool story. And any other location I do know is that uh, Tom, whose wedding it is today, uh, is someone who I photographed many years previous with his family. And that's how they knew to contact us. Uh, they're in our village. Um, I have obviously had to have the conversation as to, well, why didn't you pick me first? However, let's let that one go for a minute. Uh, I'm sure they have their reasons. Uh, anyway, with a 40-minute drive, there's plenty that I can talk about. I don't want to bore you to death, but hey, <laughs> I've got to do something in the time. Uh, so, a few bits and pieces. What's been going on since the last time we caught up? Well, sadly, Ronnie has now left the hearing dogs. Uh, I had my last shoot with her on Thursday. Dreadfully sad. I've really, really enjoyed working with her. And to the uh, company that she's going to... Um, you've gained a huge asset and the hearing dogs have lost one too. I think that's a, it's a real sadness for me, but I'm really excited for Veronica and for the company they're going to, because I think they're going to do amazing things. So thank you, Ronnie, for all of the hard work and all of the years of tolerance you put up with me the past six years. Uh, I look forward to hearing from, how, from you on how your new job goes. Uh, a couple of really nice emails. Thank you to Terry Whitaker and Lindsay Kelly who both emailed in coincidentally this week, both from the States. I don't know where in the States Terry is from. I do know Lindsay is from Ohio. 
both said really nice things about the podcast and that really made me smile. Uh, Lindsay in particular responded to the question about whether people minded me recording from this. My mobile studio, my four-wheel drive, trusty mobile studio, the Land Rover Defender. You could not pick, I don't think, a louder, more clunky, more bouncy studio to work in, and yet it's one of my favourite places to be. And, and a few people emailed in, and Lindsay in particular, uh, when, I, when I posed the question, did people mind me recording? Uh, of course, you can carry on emailing me in. Uh, my email is paul at paulwilkinsonphotography.co.uk. I always love to hear from you, uh, and wherever I can and wherever I remember, I do give people a shout-out and or I respond on email. The hardest things, though I do wish people would do it, please do leave us a review. This podcast is available pretty much everywhere. Uh, iTunes is the most useful place to leave a review. For whatever reason, it seems to drive SEO pretty well. Um, so please do head over there, but be aware I can't respond. It's a real shame, so it seems to me to be a flaw in many of these systems is it's one-way traffic. You can leave me a nice review or a review that says I've got to do something differently and I have no way of responding to you. All I can do is see if I can dig out an equivalent email. I go on a quick Google hunt, see if I can find out who the person who left the review is and then respond and say thanks. So from the bottom of my heart, genuinely thank you to everyone who leaves us nice reviews and five-star ratings and things. Uh, but please be aware, it's not me being rude. I simply cannot. There is no mechanism. Uh, it has been a busy week, though, uh, full of headshots. Who saw that coming? I did not see that coming. Uh, this year is going to be the year where I've taken pictures or taken headshots more than any other type of photography. Now, of course, strictly speaking, a headshot is just a pure form of portraiture and for that reason I love doing them. If you think about it, it really is just a, a portrait cropped in quite tight. Uh, and to be honest, most people who come for headshots actually want slightly wider pulled shots anyway, which is no different in some senses to my portrait clients, except that, except that 90% of our portrait style photography is for a family. And so family photography versus a single person headshot, that's really the resounding difference. And at the moment we are doing a huge amount of the headshots. We're still doing quite a lot of family stuff, but it's the headshots side of it that seems to have grown exponentially. I have no idea why, if I was being really positive, I'd say it's because of my marketing uh, and the fact we did retune the website uh, earlier in the year, actually. I, I cleaned up the bit that's all about headshots and maybe that's driven it. If I'm being negative, well, it might well be that lots of people are coming out of their current jobs, uh, either enforced changes of career through uh, economic downturn of COVID-19, or they've had chance to reflect on their career and decided to do something different. And so we are doing a lot of headshots for people for LinkedIn, for commercial websites, for their social media profiling, and all of the above. And so it may well be that, or it might even be just simply a combination of the two. Uh, it might be too simplistic to think that it's one thing uh, or another. We have done quite a few portrait shoots, a few family shoots which have just been to die for. In fact, there's one in that just as I left the studio, they'd come in to see their pictures. A very quick turnaround for us. We normally, we normally allow two weeks to turn around pictures, but occasionally a client will request a quick turnaround or we will offer it because, well, frankly, it would be good to get the revenue in and so we'll offer it up as a, you know, we'll do it within a few days, please come back and see your pictures. And so they were in today, which is just lovely. The little boy, Matthew, uh, one of the sweetest little kids you'll ever meet. It's a wedding couple. It's a couple who 
uh, I photographed um, down at Le Mans where it was their wedding years ago, years ago, and they've come back with their little boy, uh, which of course is a trip down memory lane as well as being a really, really lovely shoot. So a few of those. Uh, big, big workload this this week was. Um, getting my competition prints ready for the MPA internationals that uh, are judged uh, later this month and announced uh, towards the end of the year. Uh, big chunk of work uh, doing the first round file prep and then doing the prints for the ones that got through to the second round. Um, I don't really speak about the competition side of it until after. <laughs> there is a reason for that. Um, I'm not very good with competitions. It drives my insecurity um, as well as a slightly vicious competitive streak, which isn't very pleasant. And so although I do enter competitions, we have to. It's part of our marketing strategy. Um, I don't really enjoy the process and I tend not to talk about it and if we do well of course I will uh, tell the world that we've won something if I don't very quietly um, it will get ignored but the images the images are still really valuable it's a great thing to do because you have to push yourself you have to create things that you may not have done before and you certainly have to finish them to a level that you wouldn't normally do and so those images I think we got 18 through to the second round um, so those 18 pictures, uh, which is a pretty big scoop actually, those 18 pictures have been finished to the nth degree. I mean, I've poured over those. It, you know, sometimes it can take me an afternoon to make sure every detail that I can spot is correct. You know, dust spots, stray hairs, colour balance, the way it prints. Uh, each one pr was probably printed. I think the one I printed the least was three times. The rest were printed four or five times until I was absolutely happy that all aspects of the print of the print were as good as I could get them. Now, of course, when it goes up in front of the judges, and, and I, as it happens, I know some of the judges. Uh, if I win, if I win something, oh my goodness, the judges are the best in the world. They are the best in the world. Some of the best photographers, a discerning eye, they know how to spot quality. Of course, if I don't win, uh, then it's not my fault. It's that the judges didn't spot how good I was. They're useless. The judges are terrible. The judges, what were they, myopic? Um, and because of course the psychology is true of all of us, the number of times I'm given an image to look at and asked the question by someone who either I'm mentoring or who is out there in the community, and they say, I entered this competition, I think it should have won. Why didn't the judges give it good marks? Please, can you tell me? And of course, in the end, 99% of the time, you look at an image and you can really see why the judges didn't give it good marks, even my own. If my own get good marks, uh, you know, of course, the thing is here, right, when you enter an image, when you enter an image, you expect or you hope it's going to do well and you certainly don't enter something that you don't think has stands a chance, right? You don't. Or, I mean, if you are, then you're a fool and you will soon be parted with your money because you should not be entering images that are that you already know are not that good. You should be entering images that you think stand a chance against the best in the world. That's the very point of entering competitions. Um, and so when the judges don't spot it, it does break your heart a little bit. Of course it does. Um, and it leaves you just wondering why and what was it you could do differently. Um, of course you lash out and say, it's definitely the judge's fault, it's nothing I did, the print was amazing. Um, and when you win, of course the judges are incredible human beings. That's just the normal human psyche, in my opinion. Uh, but I'm not very—I'm not a big fan of it. Um, I'm a big fan of qualifications far more, far more than competitions. However, I have done my prints. Uh, it's cost me a small fortune, uh, particularly as a. 
I printed each one four or five times on very expensive paper and B, my printer blew up in the process and so uh, it started to, in a very creative, modern artist kind of way, spatter magenta and black ink randomly over one or two of the prints. Luckily it was only one or two and it left me with still enough that I could enter, uh, but it does mean that finally after 10 glorious uh, chroma ink or whatever they call it, the, the Epson um, inks, after eight or oh, ten glorious years uh, of using an Epson 3880, it is time to retire it to the great printer uh, or the great print studio in the sky because it, it has had enough and it's certainly, it doesn't owe me anything, I don't know how many pounds I've spent on ink. It's one of those things, isn't it? It's probably, the printer probably cost me 600 quid and I've probably spent 6,000 pounds on inks. Um, so I'm not quite sure what to do, but I'm going to go on a hunt and read the reviews. If anyone has uh, any suggestions of a printer, then please do email me in. That's paul at paulwilkinsonphotography.co.uk. I will talk you through in a later podcast the process of finding a new printer, uh, not least of which might be skewed by the fact I still own seven full cartridges of K8 Ultrachrome from Epson. Uh, I was thinking I might switch over finally to Canon, having used Epson printers all my life. I may switch over to Canon, but I still have, what, six times 40, 300 quid, if you include VAT, 300 quid's worth of ink sitting on a shelf, which if I go to Canon, I won't be able to use, but if I stay with Epson, their latest generation of the 3880 will take the same ink. So maybe, in the end, the 300 quid of ink already available to me will swing the balance. Uh, but they're away and gone. I will keep you posted as to how I've done. I'm not one of those photographers that yells it from the rooftops that I've entered because I'm equally not one of those photographers who will yell it from the rooftops that I didn't win anything. <laughs> it's, um, <laughs> I'll just very quietly keep you posted because there's only us and actually yeah, I've just worked out how many thousands of people listen to the podcast. Well, maybe, I, maybe I've cocked that up when I'm thinking that um, there's only me and, me and one or two others that know about it. Uh, anyway, uh, wedding today. Uh, so of course, it's freaked me a little bit having to shoot a wedding. I've only shot a couple this year and it's been a little bit of a gap since the last one. And packing the bags and doing my cross-checking, once we're in wedding season, it's so easy because the bags are nearly always ready. I feel like one of those FBI agents in, if you ever watched um, Criminal Minds, Criminal Minds is the one because they all have a go bag. So a go bag is, it means they'll get a call and they have to be on the plane to anywhere in the US within half an hour. So they all have a go bag, which is simply a bag full, I'm assuming, of spare clothes, um, toiletries, you know, a book to read, I don't know, all of those kinds of things, because they don't know when they're gonna get the call and they won't have long to react. When we're in wedding season, my camera bags are a little bit like that, if I'm honest. They're nearly always packed. Everything's nearly always in there. Everything's charged up. Very rarely um, is anything left out of the bag, except for my main camera when I'm actually shooting in the studio. However, as you can imagine, after how many, how many months it's been since the last wedding, there was kit everywhere. It all had to be collected, it all had to be cleaned, uh, the batteries had to be charged and I had to make sure I'd got spare batteries in there. The flash heads, my little speed lights, which I almost never use unless I'm shooting a wedding, they all had to be charged and checked to make sure that I knew they were all working correctly. Uh, the batteries in the remote for the speed lights had to be uh, replaced 
I had to go through the whole rigmarole. Uh, it's made even more complicated by the fact that we carry two full kit bags. So I can actually shoot um, a wedding off either bag. I have my A bag, which has got the D5 and a D800 and a rack of lenses, but I also have a spare bag. Admittedly, it doesn't have a D5 in it, it has a D4 in it um, and spare lenses. So I could pick that bag if I had to and still shoot a beautiful wedding. So uh, that's there just in case the worst happens and uh, we have a complete and utter failure. And given that my Nikon uh, fixation won't guarantee the repair work anymore because it's got to the end of its um, average shutter count, I know time is limited. So I definitely am carrying uh, multiple spares. Uh, but of course, today being a wedding photographer, you've got to get into the psychology of being a wedding photographer. And I find that, I don't know why I find it so hard. I work at the highest level as a portrait photographer. I have clients all over the world. I have high profile clients. I have wealthy clients. I have everyday clients. You know, it's kind of a big mixed bag and it never, ever phases me. But doing a wedding, I have never yet got past the apprehension that I feel. And maybe part of it is that as a wedding photographer, you have so many roles to play. You know, from the minute I knock on that door, the first time and I get to the bride's house and I knock on the door, the most nervy knock I'll ever do, because you do not know. You do not know what you're gonna face uh, when you walk in there. But from the minute I do that, I'm gonna have to be so many things. I'm going to have to be a portrait photographer, and then a fashion photographer. I might have to be a counsellor. I might eventually be a bit of a wedding planner. I've got to be a jester, of course, when it comes to photographing the church. I'm going to be an architectural photographer, then the rings, a product photographer, and then when the food comes out, because the caterers love this, I'm going to be a food photographer, carrying all the bags and possibly other people's stuff. I'm going to be a Sherpa, I'm going to be an entertainer, a public speaker, a Toastmaster, and at the end, I'm going to go back to being a wedding photographer. And having to do all of that, I think, takes its toll. And worse than anything, I get stage fright. Basically, I get a performer's stage fright because I've got to do all of these things. So I am, if I'm honest, as ever, a little bit freaked out. And I've never managed to get past that. However, that's today. That was this week. So what is the topic of this week's podcast? Well, it actually came to me as I was checking my camera and it occurred to me that because they'd upgraded the firmware for me, something I didn't ask for, by the way, but they did, is that they've reset some of the settings I use. And one of the key settings I have is I set up the dials to be half a stop each. Now that sounds fairly trivial when you say it, but I wondered how many people understand stops. So I asked a few people and nearly no one understands a stop which freaked me out a little bit, if I'm honest, because people really should understand stops. So a stop is very simple, a photographic stop. It's called a stop. We've always called it a stop. It's shorthand for F-stop, but it's still, we just call it stops, right? It's one stop over, one stop under, half stop over, push that by two stops, whatever it might be. Nobody really understands it. Well, let's dig into it. The word stop is primarily, as far as I can work out, derived from f-stop. And f, the letter f, we all know that every lens has an f value. Uh, the letter f means fraction. And the word fraction, this particular fraction, applies to the lens length, the length of the lens, the barrel length. So whether it's a 200mm lens or a 100mm lens, it, it applies to that length 
divided by the diameter of the hole through which the light is going to pass, which is the aperture. So a 200mm lens with a 50mm diameter hole is f4. Okay, simple, 200mm divided by a diameter 50, that gives you the value 4, f4. And that's how the word f, an f the word f in f-stop came to be, it's from fraction. And one stop simply means the doubling or the halving of the amount of light in your exposure. Sometimes you'll hear the term EVs, which is exposure value. EVs and um, EVs and stops line up, but they are not quite the same thing, but they do have a one-to-one -one correlation. So if you pushed something by one stop and you put it up by one EV, you'd have exactly the same effect. So for this conversation, EVs and f-stops are completely analogous, but we're gonna talk about stops. So one stop equals the brightening or the darkening of your exposure by one or by, by it's either doubling or halving the exposure brightness, right? So if you, you decrease your shutter speed, if you make your shutter speed twice as slow, you are doubling your effective exposure. You are letting in, quite literally, if you open up the shutter speed for twice as long, you are gonna let in twice as much light. That is the most obvious of all of these bits of the conversation, okay? If you open a tap for twice as long, you're gonna get twice as much water come through it. So exactly the same is true in the camera. If you open the shutter for twice as long, you slow down your shutter by half. So you go, let's say, from one one hundredth of a second to one fiftieth of a second, your image is gonna have twice as much light in it, in its exposure. You are doubling the exposure. Similarly low with your f-stops, with your aperture. The trouble with your aperture is, as you've seen, it's a fractional division between the lens length and the diameter, not the surface area. It would have been much better had they used the surface area of the aperture, because then the calculation would be much simpler and we'd have F numbers that would be literally, you know, one, two, three, well, one, two, four, eight, 16, but we don't. It's the fractional value between the aperture and the lens length. It's the lens length divided by the diameter of the aperture. And so one stop would be, for instance, going from f4 to f5.6, going from f5.6 to f8, going from f8 to f11. I know these numbers are a nightmare, you just have to remember them. It's a real headache, but once you get used to it, they're just kind of second nature, you get a feel for it. If you wanna open it up, you get it a bigger, uh, aperture from f4 to f2.8, that's another stop. And then f2.8 up to f1.8, again, another stop. And these are really useful because it means that when you start to think in stops, you can do some things in your head automatically. So let's say I am shooting at f8. I'm shooting at one two hundredth of a second at f8. But the background of my portrait is too sharp. What do I do? Well, of course I do what we always do, which is I'm gonna open up the aperture. I'm gonna open up the aperture by one stop, okay? I'm gonna open it from F8 to F5.6. When I do that, I now know I'm gonna allow in twice as much light, right? Because it's one stop. I've just said it's doubling the light. So what have I gotta to do to my shutter speed if I'm at one two hundredth of a second and I open it up by one stop? I have got to double my shutter speed to keep the exposure as it was. 
So I'm going to go from f8 to 5.6. I'm going to go from one two hundredth to one four hundredth of a second on the shutter speed. My exposure is going to stay exactly the same, but now my uh, background is that little bit more blurred because I've taken out, I've, I've dropped the depth of field because of course aperture affects your depth of field. If I still decide that it's too um, sharp in the background, I'm now going to go to uh, f4. It's a one-person portrait, right? I can get away with f4 on a one-person portrait. Um, I only need the eyes and a bit of the nose to be sharp. I don't really care about anything else. So I'm now at one four hundredth of a second on the shutter speed. I'm going to open up my aperture by one stop. Guess what? I'm going to shut down my shutter speed. I'm going to make it twice as fast. One stop. So I'm going to go from one four hundredth of a second to one eight hundredth of a second and I'm at f5.6. I've got a blurry background but I have not changed my exposure at all. Really useful. Now what about ISO or the sensitivity? Of course ISO, we call it ISO because as photographers we are lazy beings. Uh, strictly speaking, ISO, the letters I, S and O, really refer to the International Standards Organization. There, if you go and Google ISO, you'll find a gazillion standards. You know, there's an ISO standard for uh, the emissions on an engine. There's the ISO standard for color uh, renderings on monitors. There's the ISO standard for, I think there's ISO standards for temperature definitions and weight definitions. There are ISO standards for um, the plug standards across the world. I mean, the ISO standards are simply, it's simply an organization that creates and manages standards. And I've actually photographed one of their um, research groups. It was really interesting. Uh, they were developing connectors. So things like your USB, um, A, B, C, USB 3, all these different standards. There's a room full of incredibly clever people from incredibly important organizations like Intel and Apple and uh, Microsoft and AMD and oh, you name it. It goes on and on and on and on. And they all get together in a room and one of them will take the lead on defining a standard. Uh, eventually, when everyone agrees that standard, it will be given an ISO number. The International Standards Organization will give it a number and agree it. And from then on in, we will get to know it as, let's say, Thunderbolt or USB-C. Uh, but for whatever reason, they go through this whole, uh, they, it goes through the, the ISO standards and then it gets given a trade name uh, by whoever. I've no idea how that happens. I suspect the group of researchers that put it together define a funky name. So we are lazy beings and we call the sensitivity on a sensor or in film ISO. Um, originally some of this stuff came from an ASA, it used to be called the ASA rating as well, which I think was the American Standards Authority, but I'm hoping there's some Americans out there who will clarify that for me, I honestly can't remember. From now on though, we're going to call it ISO because that's what everyone calls it. So we have ISO. And the ISO does exactly the same as everything else. It's set out in stops. So ISO 100, ISO 200, 400, 800, 1600, 3200, and on and on and on are all one stop. When you double that number, you increase the sensitivity by one stop. So ISO 400 is twice as sensitive as ISO 200. ISO 800 is twice as sensitive as ISO 400. So let's go back to my example. But this time I've got, I've checked my exposure and even at 
um, one one hundredth of a second on a 200mm lens. I'm shooting at f4 already. I've got nowhere to run to and the image is underexposed. Okay, what on earth do I do? Well, the problem I've got first is I need to get that shutter speed in range. And we all know, we should know, that the slowest shutter speed you should be shooting on any given lens is one over the length of that lens. All right, that's a safety. That's not true these days with image stabilization. And of course you might be using a tripod or you might simply have very steady hands. But the safe speed for any shutter is one over the length of the lens, right? So if you're shooting on a 200 mil lens, you need to be thinking very carefully if you're gonna shoot slower than one 200th of a second. Um, I can, as it happens, I have fairly steady hands when it comes to shooting. Or at least it comes to, I have steady hands when it comes to shooting and I'm concentrating. Uh, when I'm being a slack Harry, um, who knows what's going on? The camera's waving around all over the place, everything's blurred, but I'm having a good day. Um, anyway, so at one one hundredth of a second on a 200 mil lens uh, at f4, my image is, uh, let's guess it, at half a stop, or one stop rather, underexposed. So the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to get that shutter speed to where I want it. So I'm going to double it from one one hundredth of a second to one two hundredth of a second. Okay, that's now a safe shutter speed. But the first thing I'll do, or second thing I'll do rather after doing that, is I'm going to increase my ISO. What did I say I was at? ISO 400? I can't remember. Let's say my ISO 400. So I'm now going to double my ISO. I'm going to go from 400 to 800. So now where I've got a shutter speed that's twice as fast, it's letting in half as much light, I'm going to increase the sensitivity by one notch or one stop on the ISO and that will compensate for that. So I've doubled my shutter speed, I've doubled my ISO, the um, exposure is still exactly what it was, which is to say one stop underexposed. But I'm still determined that everything about this shot is about right. The depth of field is about right. I can't slow my shutter speed down. The image is underexposed. So what I'm going to do is increase that ISO by one stop again. So I've now increased my ISO by two stops in this story. I've gone from 400 to 800 to 1600. Um, I've increased my shutter speed from 100 to 200. And I've basically taken an image that was one stop underexposed. It's now correctly exposed. And I've done it all by understanding the notches on my guide wheels, because that's the point of this story. Why is this worthwhile? Why is it worth understanding when your camera has so many automatic features you have so many options available to you in post-production man the world really is your oyster why on earth is any of this important well it's important because it means when i'm on the ground on the day shooting a wedding or shooting a portrait shoot is i do not have to think when they sent me the camera back they had reset all of my dials and it made me remember that I have to set the dials. I use half stop dials. And all that means is for every click on the front dial, every click on the back dial, they're always gonna be half a stop. Now the D5 allows you to do quite different things. I could have, for instance, the front dial is one stop, the back dial is half a stop. So on the front dial, I've got my shutter speed. Okay, so on the front dial, if I maybe I could set that to one stop. So every click of the wheel is either gonna double or half my shutter speed. And then on the back dial, I could have half stops. But that's not that useful. It's much better for me to have everything set at half stops. Now, half stops um, just sit in between those full stops. So if you talk up the F scale, 
You go from, let's say, F2.8, you then go to 3.3, to 4, to 4.8, to 5.6, to 6.7, to 8. I know, again, nasty, horrible, unrememberable, uh, you know, completely alien numbers, but worth remembering. I set those dials to half stops. And the reason I do that is when I take a test picture, if the exposure is right, and the exposure is usually fairly close, I can then control everything else without even looking at my camera. Once I know, you know let's say the background is too sharp and my reference is to F8, I know I want to go probably, let's say, to F4. That's two stops. That's four clicks on my back dial and four clicks up on my front dial. So I open up the aperture by four clicks and I speed up the shutter to compensate by four clicks. And because I've got those click reference points, I can feel it, I can hear it and touch it. It goes dun 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 as I roll my thumb around it. And it, I can do it really quick. If I hear something like I know that that's three and three. I just, I've just done it so often, I know how the camera feels. So you get this really strange relationship. But it's one that's, it means, I, I say I don't need to look at the camera. I am in effect looking at the camera. I'm using my fingertips and my feeling to control it. And so, for instance, I will sometimes swing up, the, swing up, sometimes pick up the camera rather, and you can hear that the shutter speed is too slow. You know, sometimes when you've been doing something else or you, you're adjusting the dials without looking, and then you hear the shutter, and even at something like a 30th of a second, I can hear that that's way too slow. It makes a particular noise on my camera, and I'm so used to it, I know it's too slow. And so, without even thinking about it, if I see on the back of the screen that the exposure's about right, I can simply roll that shutter speed up by, let's say, six notches, and roll the aperture um, out, uh, in rather, close it down uh, by six notches, or close the ISO button. So if I decide on the back of the camera that the uh, exposure looks right, but it's, and the depth of field looks right, but I can hear that the shutter speed is wrong. I want to keep everything except that damn shutter speed. Well, the only thing I can do is as I roll the shutter speed up, make it faster, is I do the same thing to the ISO to compensate for it. So um, as it happens, the uh, ISO control is on the back dial, um, but you have to hold down the ISO button. So what I would do is I'd roll that front button, I'd roll the shutter speed button by let's say six notches, um, I would then very quickly plant my finger onto the ISO button, which is right next to the shutter release on the Nikon D5. It's a beautiful piece of design. Um, I would then roll the um, back shut back um, dial, roll the back dial six notches to account for it. So I've sped up the shutter by six notches, which is uh, half stops. That's three stops. Okay, if each if each click is half a stop. Six is three stops, and then I've done exactly same, exactly the same to the ISO. I've jabbed my finger on the ISO button, counted six clicks on that back dial, and everything in terms of the actual exposure is exactly as it was before I started the process. It's just that now I have an acceptably fast shutter speed. So I know learning this stuff is dull. I know it's boring. It's like when I was a drummer and I had to learn the rudiments, or like I'm watching a piano player. Um, learn uh, their scales. It's not what you want to do. What you want to do is pick up a camera and take a damn photo. But actually when you think about it, what you want to do 
is make the most of every opportunity you have to take photos. And if I'm fanning around with my nose in the menus on the back of a camera, if I'm having to work uh, understanding each step I take, that reduces the number of times I can just take a photo. And so that's why you know this stuff. That's why you need an understanding of the mechanics and the physics of what you're doing. It's because it helps you not care. It helps you just take pictures. And I'm gonna climb down off my little tub with that one simple message. Learn your technique because it means you can mess around far quicker, far more effectively, and you'll take more and you'll take better pictures. One stop is simply the halving of the doubling of light. And on that happy note, I have, what is saying, five minutes to go before I arrive at my clients. Uh, I hope this podcast has been entertaining and or a little bit useful. It's one of those podcasts that if you already knew this, you probably switched off halfway through. If you didn't know it, it's completely unfathomable. But please go and have a look at any one of a million articles on F-Stops if you haven't understood it. Or email me and I will send you back a cheat sheet. Uh, all about it. Uh, until next time, I hope the weather is better where you are than where I am. I hope with COVID, I know globally things are not looking particularly good, but I hope where you are, things aren't too bad and you're safe, you're healthy, you're wealthy and you're having a good time. And remember, until next time, be kind to yourselves. Take care.